All right, so we started a new series last week, uh, spending six weeks talking about what it means to be community, what it means to, to live as the people of God. And uh, we are, are having this conversation about what it means to be the church, what it means to be this community, um, not as a building, but as a people, not as a place, but as a movement, not as an event, but a lifestyle trying to wrap our heads around what it means to be the church, all while simultaneously building a building that's in a place at a certain location at a certain address. But that's not who we are as a, as a community. That's not who we are as a church. We are a people. We are a movement. We are a, a lifestyle. And so we're having these conversations to try to, to try to stretch us, to try to help us grow, to try to help us re-envision what it means to be missionaries in our context, what it means to be the people of God in this movement of God, what it means to be members not of an institution that has a certain meeting time, but a family that is on an exciting adventure together. And so many of our life groups are having these conversations as well as we uh, continue to, to parallel what's happening here in these gatherings with, with our life groups. And so if you're not in a life group, I want to encourage you to find a life group. And uh, we have brochures out in the lobby at the information table with a list of those groups. So, so get into one of these groups so that you can continue these conversations beyond what is uh, just happening here in this time. And so as we're going through these conversations, we're living in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're, we're, we're spending time in 1 Peter chapter 2 week after week as we, we look at what it means to be the church. And, and there's a variety of images uh, that Peter uses to describe who we are as a people. Last week we focused on this idea of being the chosen people. That we are chosen people. And, and we tend to think about being chosen as, as our, a focus on our own personal salvation. That it's that is about me being saved. But when we see God through Scripture choosing people or calling people, it's, it's not for their own benefit. When, when he chooses Abraham and his family, it's not so that they alone can be saved. It is so that they can be agents of blessing for others. And so when God chooses us, being a chosen people, it is not just for our own benefit, not for our own comfort, not for our own salvation, but for the sake of others. And so like Abraham, we are chosen for the sake of God's plan. We're chosen for the blessing of others. That's a big thing to wrap our head around. That, that through baptism, we are included in the family of Abraham. We inherit the promises made to Abraham. We inherit and become a people chosen and called for God's purposes. And so in our life groups, we're having these conversations. Uh, one of the questions this last week that, that really was, was just eye-opening for us was this question that said, assume that God acted in mighty ways to form your group. Why did God form you? And to whom is God sending you? So in our life groups, if God chose our group to be together, 
if that was a movement of God for that particular group of people to be gathering at that particular time, why? For what purpose has God chosen that group to be together? I would ask the same question today of this group. Assume that God chose for you to be here today. Assume that God chose for you to be a part of this community of faith, maybe just for today, maybe for the last 20 years, maybe for the next 20 years, but God chose you to be a part of this family. Why? For what purpose? Because I do not believe that it is arbitrary that you are here today. I don't think it's accidental that you are a part of this gathering today. That God has a purpose for you, a plan for you as a part of this gathering, as a part of this community. And it may be for your own benefit, but it's not limited to just your own benefit. That you being a part of this gathering, you being a part of this community is for the benefit of others. And for the benefit of the kingdom of God. And so we continue to ask the question of, of God, what are you saying to me? What are you calling me to? What are you asking me to participate in? Where do I see you at work? And how do I join in with that? Because you being here today is not an accident. And so we're spending time in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're using a spiritual practice called dwelling in the Word. It's this activity for us, this spiritual practice for us, to, to tune into and listen to God. Because face it, we are not good listeners, right? We're, we're not good listeners, we're quick to think about our own response. We're quick to commentate. We're quick to come up with answers. We're quick to come up with an opinion or a judgment or a criticism. But we're not really good listeners. We're not good listeners of each other. We're not good listeners of the Spirit. And so dwelling in the Word is this activity that helps us engage in Scripture in a way that's different from our classes, different than a typical sermon. It allows us to listen to what the Spirit is saying through the Word. And then it's also an opportunity for us to extend hospitality to one another, looking for the stranger, looking for the outsider, looking for the, the, the new person or the guest or someone we don't know well. We're extending hospitality and inviting them into an opportunity to listen to one another. And so this activity is not arbitrarily chosen. It's stretching us and helping us grow in what it means to be listeners of the Word, listeners of the Spirit, and what it means to be a people of hospitality, always the host and never the guest. And so if you, if you really don't want to participate, that's fine. You can sit there and, and quietly reflect on the passage on your own. But I really want to encourage everybody to participate in this activity. And so there's, there's a sheet of paper on each of the chairs. Grab one of those. Make sure you have that. There's some instructions down below. If you're going to take that form with you and, and go do this activity with another group of people, that's a full set of instructions. But for the sake of this time here, I'm going to read the passage once, and for the sake of time, we're only going to read it once, 
and then we're going to break up into pairs, look for somebody that you don't know well, invite them into this opportunity, invite them into this, this time of listening, and then each of you share with one another an answer to one of two questions that are bolded on that sheet. What caught your imagination and or what question would you want to ask a biblical scholar about this passage? So you can answer one or both of those questions. You're not giving commentary to one another. You're not trying to answer. Neither one of you are the biblical scholar. There's only a couple of you in the room that qualify. So you're not the biblical scholar answering the question. You're just listening to the question. Don't try to correct the other person. Don't try to answer the other person. You're simply listening. What did you hear or what question did you have in this passage, okay? Does it make sense? All right, so this is a practice, which means it takes repetitiveness to really understand what it is that we're trying to do. Okay. So I'm going to pray and then read the passage and then invite you to find somebody to pair off with and, and have this, this conversation just for a few minutes, just you know, five minutes together. God, we thank you for this word. God, would you speak to us through this? God, it, it is a mystery to me. I can't explain it. I don't understand how the Spirit can speak to us through this passage. But God, I, pr I pray that uh, we embrace this mystery and that you, you reveal to us something about you, about us, through this passage. Bring this passage to life. Give us ears to hear and a heart to listen to you and to one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. 
But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if we were, if we were going through this activity, through this practice, um, as a smaller group, the, the next step would be for you to report back to your group what it is you heard the other person say, okay? So we're, we're not taking that step here because of time, but, but in your life group, in other contexts where we are going through this activity, uh, the next step would be for you to, to be able to, to share with the group what the other person heard. And that's, that's what really helps us in our listening, right? We have to listen well enough to be able to share what was said with the larger group. So, for example, in, in our life group context, uh, we would break up into pairs. You would share with one another what you heard, and then we would come back together around the table as a whole group, and each pair would share what the other person was sharing. Okay, so that's a, ne a next step that is a little bit more than what we can handle with this size group. Uh, maybe someday we'll tackle uh, that reporting piece, but, but listening to one another. So thank you for listening. Uh, just, just the act of sitting and listening to somebody is, is a gift because often in our culture, we're just not being heard. We don't have an opportunity to really be heard. And so, so thank you for listening. We're going to add a couple of verses uh, to this passage. If you look back at your sheets, we've been going through verse 10, and today we're going to add verses 11 and 12 and continue including those verses in, in the weeks to come, uh, as well as our, our conversations in our life groups. So let me read verse 11 and 12 for us. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Foreigners and exiles. Last week we talked about being chosen people. In verse 11, Peter describes us as foreigners, as exiles. Hebrews chapter 13 says, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. And so there's this idea of being foreigners. Let's talk a little bit about the apocalypse. The end is coming, right? 
There is this fascination that we have, there's this fear that we have, this anxiety about the end of the world, right? If, if you look at movie choices, there's always something in the theater that has something about the end of the world, right? Whether it is a zombie apocalypse or a nuclear destruction of the world or some freak combination of natural disasters that, that wipe out every city on the planet or a meteor that is, is hurling toward the planet that's going to destroy human life. Maybe it's an alien invasion. Oftentimes that's the, the apocalyptic moment in movies, right, is, is the alien invasion. Um, maybe if you're watching the news a lot, it's the coronavirus. Um, the end is coming, right? The, the world will be destroyed. And when we see this word apocalypse, we think about this extreme nature of things. And so we look here at this passage in 1 Peter, and we see that there is this end time coming. That what we are doing is going to glorify God on the day he visits us. This idea of when he returns. But we're foreigners now. We're in exile now. Philippians chapter 3 tells us our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And so as, as the people of God, we are not fully settled here. We're foreigners living in a place that isn't our true home. And because of this, as, as foreigners, we are on this journey together toward the promised land of God. We're on the move. We are, we're never static. We're never just content and settled with where we're at because this isn't our real home. The, the church is not defined by where it's located. The church is defined by where it's going. And so living as foreigners in our present world motivates the church to always have this sense of eager expectation that we're motivated because of the world that is to come, not because of the world we're in now. So the life of the church is defined as this, this journey through this world toward the promised future of God. We're living in the world, but we're never really making the world our home. Now this is hard for us to really wrap our minds around. Most of us have an identity that is rooted in being an American citizen. Like, like, we define who we are as being an American citizen. And so to identify with a foreigner, to identify as an exile, those are not familiar experiences for us. It's hard for us to really identify with that. And even those of us, or those of you, who have lived in other countries as an American citizen, maybe it is military or, or business or something had you living in a different place, even when you were in that place, you still received a certain amount of security and a certain amount of confidence 
from being an American citizen. Yes, the culture around you was different, but as an American citizen, you still had a place. You still had an identity. You still had a place to go. You certainly were not an exile. You certainly were not in a foreign country where, where you were in exile at the mercy of your host country. And so try for a moment to really wrap your head around what it means to be a foreigner, to be in exile, to be living in a place that is not your homeland, not your culture, not your language, not your security, not your rights, not your beliefs. You're living in that place. And everything around you is against you. Can you imagine that for a moment? Really try to put yourself in that position. It's a stretch for us. But Peter is saying this is who we are. That we're foreigners. And we're exiles. That we are living in a place that is not our home. And it is this identity, as ones who have a different citizenship, this identity supersedes our identity as an American citizen. That, that your American citizenship, that's what the Philippians passage talks about as a city, or the Hebrews passage, of a city not enduring. Your American citizenship will not endure. Your American homeland will not endure. It's a dead-end path. It may be beyond our lifetime. But America will not endure. Because we have a citizenship that exists somewhere else. And we are in exile in America. We are in exile in this place. This is not our true citizenship. This is just secondary. Stanley Hauerwasen Will Williman are two theologians who, who describe this as being resident aliens. Resident aliens. That we are living in this place, but as aliens, as exiles, as ones who don't have real citizenship. We are foreigners, we're resident aliens, and so we gather together in what they describe as a Christian colony, that we come together and, and form this colony together. And they, they say a colony is a beachhead, an outpost, an island of one culture in the middle of another, a place where the values of home are reiterated and passed on to the young, a place where the distinctive language and the lifestyle of the resident aliens are lovingly nurtured and reinforced. In baptism, our citizenship 
is transferred from one dominion to another. And we become, in whatever culture we find ourselves, resident aliens. In your baptism, you gave up your American citizenship for citizenship somewhere else. That we are citizens of the kingdom of God first. Now, there are two different ways to react to this idea of being a colony, right? So if, if we are a colony of, of people on an island within another culture, there's two ways we can, we can do things. As a colony, we could be a people who, who settle in, stake out a claim, build up fences, build up walls, guard our turf. We become isolationists. We, we stick with our own. It's just about us, Right? You think of, you think of a, like a, a cult commune, right, at, at the extreme of this, where they're going to build themselves in, and nothing is allowed in, and nothing is allowed out. I'm not talking about immigration policy here, by the way. Any discomfort you have about walls and fences related to that is on you, not me. So... But as Christians, we do this, right? We, we can form this, this colony where we don't let anybody in or out. It's, it's about our people, our schools, our faith, our, our way of being things. We can be very defensive. We can be very isolationist. But the story of Scripture demands something completely different. It demands a different reaction because Jesus says, follow me. And when Jesus says, follow me, these two words invite ordinary people into this incredible adventure that they cannot even anticipate, that they don't even comprehend, that they don't even understand. Jesus says, follow me, and he invites each of us into something that we don't even fully understand. That when we say yes to following Jesus, we don't know what we're getting into. And it takes us the rest of our lives of following him to really understand what it means to follow him. Jesus says, follow me. And so the church, as resident aliens, is on an adventure together. That it is this adventurous colony in a society of unbelief. In, in, in a world that doesn't believe, we are on an island. But the call to follow him demands an offensive strategy, not a defensive strategy. That the call to follow him demands that we are on the offensive because the world and its resources and its despair and its grief and its gifts and its groaning, that belongs to God. This is God's and we've got to reclaim it for his glory. That we can't go isolate ourselves, we can't go hide, we can't go build up walls around ourselves. Because this is God's, and we are God's people, and we are chosen to be a part of what God is doing in redeeming the world and bringing the world back to him. And so the colony, the church, we don't stay removed from the world it exists for the world. As, as the colony, it means God's, this is God's means for a major offensive move against the world for the world. And that's what we're a part of. 
as foreigners, we do not exist in a, a particular fortified place. We are a people on the move, like Jesus' first disciples, on the move, on a journey, on an adventure, with many unknowns, with no guarantees. But what is known is the end. What is known is the end, and that is the guarantee that we hold on to, that we move toward a clear goal. We move toward the end of history as we know it. We move to the end of the world as we know it. We move into newly formed heavens and earth. We move into this apocalyptic phase. The word apocalyptic has this wild sound to it. It has this end-of-the-world craziness. It has catastrophic crisis. It has zombies and aliens and who knows what. It's the end of the world and there's this panic and it's this sense of hopelessness and this sense of fear and anxiety and we've got to prepare for it. But because we are foreigners with a different citizenship, because we are residents from a different city, a different space, a different kingdom, we view the end differently. We see the end differently. Eugene Peterson says it this way, early church Christians believed that the resurrection of Jesus inaugurated a new age. They were, in fact, but against appearances, living in God's kingdom, a kingdom of truth and healing and grace. This was all actually present, but hidden from unbelieving eyes and inaudible to unbelieving ears. That we are living in a kingdom where the end is not this fearful zombie apocalypse. We live in this, in this kingdom where the end is about grace and healing, and truth, and God making all things new. This is our end game. This is our end story. This is where we are headed. It makes us an apocalyptic people, but not in the crazy, scary, zombie way. That, that, that Really, the meaning of the word apocalypse is simply revelation, revelation, that it is the uncovering of what was covered up so that we can see what is really there. And so when we see the end's goal, when we see what it is that God is doing, there is this revelation that occurs. It, it uncovers what was covered. We can now clearly see what was covered up. The world has been on this massive cover-up, right? Right? There's this grand conspiracy to cover up reality. And as ones who are foreigners and exiles from a different land, a different place, we see the haze lifted, the cover-up is ended, and we see clearly the truth of who God is and what the end is all about. We see reality. 
we see reality. Now, there are lots of implications to our lives about what it means to live into this kingdom. And we're talking a lot about that in different ways, in different contexts, but I just want to leave you with two, two things that we need to be paying special attention to if we're going to be an apocalyptic people. First, we have to be devoted to prayer. There is nothing else that gets us connected with the spiritual world that we're blinded to, like prayer. That prayer is is what puts us into a posture to see what God is doing. Prayer is, is what one calls the pivot action of the Christian community. It is this one thing that all things turn on because it postures us away from ourselves and toward God. It postures us away from our selfishness, the things that we want, the self-indulgence, the sense of security, all of the things that we seek as Americans. It puts us in a posture to say that is lesser and God is first. That prayer puts us in a posture and it humbles us. It changes our agenda. It changes our view of others. It changes our focus. It changes our view of the world around us. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And through prayer, we seek first the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that God's kingdom comes, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are calling out and confessing in prayer that that this reality is not the reality. That what we see here is not what God intended. And we call on God to make this place what he intended. That his kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So prayer. The second is patience. Because we are a people who are passionately pursuing something that is, does not have a calendar date. That we are anticipating something, but we don't know when. And so we are patient. We're, we're courageously committed to being a witness to the kingdom of God. No matter how long it takes No matter what it costs, we are in it for the long haul, not knowing how long the long haul is. That's hard for us, right? I want a date. Like, I want to know when our construction is going to be completed. Because, so help me, if we change that date one more time, I'm just going to lose my mind. Because I want a date on the calendar, and God doesn't give us a date on the calendar. And so we have to be patient, not just sitting back waiting, but actively patient, actively operating with a sense of urgency, not hurry, not crisis, not frantic end time stuff, but a sense of urgency, but knowing that times are in God's hands. And so we understand that the providence of God, not the news cycle, not social media, it is the providence of God 
that accounts for the times in which we live. And so we patiently wait for God. So we are foreigners living in this strange land, knowing that the end is coming, knowing what that end is. And with that, we are a prayerful people, and we are a patient people. Let's be standing together. We're going to um, spend some time now at the communion tables. And if you're visiting with us, uh, we have tables prepared along the side of the room. And this is a time for us to go to the table and remember the story that we're a part of. To remember who we are and the future that we have. The hope that we have for a future because of Jesus Christ. And so we take this bread and we break this bread. We take this cup and drink this cup. Remembering who Jesus is and the future hope that we have that we prayerfully and patiently wait for. This is also time for us to be praying with one another and for one another. So as you're headed to the tables or as you're headed back to your chairs, uh, spend time praying with one another. Uh, Get your life group together and spend some time praying together. Or pray together as a family. We've got kids in the room, parents, families. Gather your kids together and and pray together as a family. Um, Seek people out that you know who who need encouragement, who need need something special, a special request, and go pray over them. Go go seek out prayer from one of our shepherds or, or staff or one of our ministry leaders. This time is open for us to, to remember who Jesus is and to be the community that Jesus forms together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the blessings you give us. We thank you for this time at the table and a time in your word. God, thank you for the invitation to feast on your word. God, we give this time to you and pray that you will reveal yourself to us more clearly through the breaking of this bread and the taking of this cup. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.